Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the COVID global economy to you. And we're taking the very long view of the COVID-19 crisis this week, the 70,000-year view. The influential economist and advisor to governments around the world, Jeffrey Sachs, has written a new book that takes in 70,000 years of world history to draw stark conclusions about the challenges humanity faces right now. It's given him a particular perspective on the way we've responded to this pandemic and where it may all lead. You'll hear my extended conversation with him in a few minutes. But first, I did want to talk to Bloomberg Economics columnist Ferdinando Giuliano about some big news from Europe this week, which we might still be talking about many years from now. Ferdinando, I mean, I've been reading you for for, for many years and uh, you're often disappointed by Europe. And like most of us who wait for the European politicians to do exciting things, we often are left waiting for a long time. But I was struck that your assessment of this new proposal for a European recovery fund was that it could be one for the history books. Why do you think it's so significant? Well, let me start with the could, just because this proposal has not been approved yet. So this is a commission plan, which now the governments need to agree on. And as we know, there are some uh, governments, especially Austria and the Netherlands, who are skeptical of this plan. And so we shall see. But if the plan indeed goes on or anything close to this plan actually happens, I think it's truly historic for uh, three reasons, really. One is because uh, this is the European Commission borrowing on the market 750 billion uh, uh, euros, which is a substantial amount of money. And so this is something resembling some form of European fiscal policy, which we've been calling for years and years and years. Now, the Eurozone does have a bailout fund, the European Stability Mechanism, but it only gives out loans. And that's the second reason why I think this is historic, is because two-thirds of the amount of money which the Commission will distribute will be grants, i.e. money which states won't have to uh, give back. And that's historic because this money is going to the countries that most need it. So we have some form of transfers from rich areas of the EU to poor area of the EU, or better, from areas of the EU which have not been so severely affected by the pandemic to others that have. And that's the closest we have to a transfer system, just like the one which happens in any well-functioning monetary union. Now, the EU is not a monetary union, but the Eurozone is, and that's why it's significant. And the last point is because the Commission is starting to talk about some taxes which could be levied at EU level, looking at areas like Um, taxes on multinational corporations or environmental taxes, which are really, you know, natural areas for the EU to intervene, because that's that's where member states have problems in tackling issues individually. Multinational corporations are, uh, by definition, you know, sparring, um, go go across borders. So it's natural if you have, uh, if you can, if you can have a EU tax base, that would be a great thing. And so these three things uh, really make me think this is a big deal. And if you're sitting in the US, of course, you think, okay, so Europe is taking a few steps 
closer to being more like the kind of federal system you have in the US, which is something that people have said for many years. Why would you why would you decide to have the same currency when you still when you don't have that kind of federal system in place? So clearly if if it means what you're hoping it might mean, that is significant. But we have been taught, Ferdinando, and you've seen this many times and we saw it in the Eurozone crisis recently, that this the Germans will never wear this. We're always told you can't have this degree of burden sharing of you know the richer countries implicitly giving money to the likes of Italy without major change in Italy because they feel that Italy's on the wrong path and needs a lot of reform and yet here we have a proposal that was initiated by the French and the German chancellor the French president and the German chancellor Angela Merkel which as you say talks about giving money, apparently with not very many strings attached to Italy. So what's changed? So first of all, what's changed, I think, is that the coronavirus is a different shock from the ones we are used uh, to. Here, it's very hard to accuse any country of uh, mismanagement. Now, we know there have been uh, different experiences, and I think the Germans have shown themselves to be particularly competent at handling this pandemic, I think, uh, uh, globally, not just at European level. But this is a shock which is, uh, very, you know, would be very harsh to attribute to any country. So you don't have the kind of uh, moral hazard argument which you've seen in the past, for example, with regard to Greece, uh, blaming politicians for the mess they've left the country in. So I think that's one issue. But the second one, I think, has to do with the rise of populism and the fact that uh, I think Germany has seen the damages which Euroscepticism can produce and uh, now we're having in Italy a government which is back to a more pro-EU stance. Before last year, we had a pretty, you know, uh, tough Eurosceptic government. And I think, you know, Germany's realized that's not the kind of government you want next door. And I think finally, there is just a realization that, uh, you know, the geopolitics here, there is a geopolitical project at stake. Uh, the pandemic has exposed the limits of the U.S., to play an active role in, uh, uh, as it were, you know, being Europe's best friend. China and Russia are, uh, you know, there, and China in particular is looking more and more aggressive. And uh, uh, we saw in the early phases of the pandemic, China and Russia really trying to push their soft power into Italy and into the southern tier of, uh, of Europe. So I think this is a way for Germany to reassert, as it were, its political message of cohesion across Europe. And personally, I think that's a very good thing. Well, and it's interesting that, of course, Italy has become the sort of a home of, of Euroscepticism to some extent. You know, the country that had been very much in favour of being part of the EU had seen those numbers creeping up, the antipathy towards the EU. And I'm sure some people in Germany are watching that. OK, before we, we run away, uh, Ferdinando, with this crazy idea that Europe's actually going to solve its own problems... Uh, what could get in the way of this of this great future? I mean, you've mentioned there's countries that oppose that will be opposed to this idea. Um, in your gut, as a longtime Europe watcher, how likely do you think that something like this will end up actually happening? And I guess the second part of that: will it happen in, on a time scale that the money can actually get to countries in time to solve this crisis as opposed to the next crisis? I think this time is different because Germany is on board and, you know, the opposition is coming from the Netherlands, Austria, perhaps Sweden, Denmark. 
which obviously are, you know, big and important countries. But, you know, when you have, you don't have your traditional powerful ally Germany on board, it's going to be very, I think this is more of a negotiating position, you know, trying to contain, as it were, uh, this project as opposed to I'll try to oppose it. What could get in the way? My biggest fear is over how this money will be spent. And this the responsibility, I think, is primarily sits primarily with the countries that will receive them, Italy, Spain, uh, and others. This is a one-off project. It's linked to the pandemic, but it's not supposed to be renewed. Now, if it doesn't go well, I, if the, this money is misspent, there is, you know, it doesn't, uh, is not accompanied by reforms which are really needed in this country, then, you know, countries from the north will say, look, you know, we've tried, you've told us what you needed was more money. We've given you this money and yet nothing's changed. So why should we do more of this? However, you know, Italy and Spain managed to do, make good use of this money. I think this will reinforce this, that, that, their argument that what's needed is a proper fiscal union, which is not just linked to the pandemic, but goes beyond that. And obviously, that I would welcome that very much. But again, the responsibility is not just with the stingy and naughty Nordics, is with the southerners who need to really show that what they claim are just prejudices from the north are indeed such. Ferdinando Diano, I think we will be all be following the money and waiting to see where this goes. Thank you very much. Thank you. When I was a graduate student at Harvard in the mid-1990s, everyone wanted to take a course taught by Jeffrey Sachs because, unlike most of his colleagues at that time, he actually talked about the real world in his classes, stuff that you actually needed to know to understand the world. Now, since then, he spent a large part of his academic and public intellectual life over the years thinking about the challenges of developing and emerging market economies, most recently serving as Special Advisor to the UN Secretary-General on the Sustainable Development Goals. And he's written a new book, The Seven Ages of Globalization, which uh, the economic historian Jared Diamond says summarises everything you really need to know about the history of the last 70,000 years. So, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, welcome uh, to Stephanomics. We should also say that you have been for many years a professor at uh, Columbia University. Um, the tagline of the book, or one of the taglines, is that you're using history to offer solutions to the most urgent problems of our time. I mean, COVID-19 is obviously the problem that we are all focused on at the moment. What are the key lessons of your book for governments wanting to chart a better way out of this crisis and I guess potentially build something better out of it? Great to be with you, Stephanie, and uh, thanks thanks for the opportunity. You know, I think the main lesson of history is that uh, moments uh, that are as momentous uh, as the one we're living through right now can have dramatic consequences for the quality of our lives, uh, even peace on the planet. And fortunately and unfortunately, th this uh, dire crisis right now could have very positive outcomes if we handle it properly, and it could have utterly disastrous outcomes uh, far beyond the already huge loss of life and burden of disease. So I'm a, I'm a worried person because uh, knowing uh, the past of uh, historical conflicts and crises, uh, 
I I know that they can go in either direction. I know this one is uh, not off to a great uh, start, uh, in a sense, in mobilizing the kind of global cooperation we need and the global foresight that we need. Uh, And so not only is this a drama in health and economics, it is quickly becoming a drama of geopolitics as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the of the many conclusions that people have started to draw about this is that there could be a real long-term impact on US leadership. I mean of course uh, particularly with the Trump administration people have been saying that for, for a while but it was it's almost like we might reach a tipping point. The US has been able to be able to make a lot of mistakes and behave in a unproductive way for a very long time while still retaining this status that it has, whether as a safe haven in financial markets, but also as a still as a as a leader that we that we look to on these kind of crises. Do you think that will be gone for good as a result of this? Or is that the risk? Right now, uh, we're seeing a, a deliberate attempt by the US government to stoke a new Cold War with China. That was underway already before covid the epidemic is being used actually to ratchet up deliberately the tensions with China. Somebody is calculating in Washington that this epidemic weakens China and now is the time to double down. I think it's very dangerous and I think it's also quite naive. When you take the 70,000 year perspective, does this ever end well? <laughs> um, I mean, the, clearly these kind of geopolitical clashes we can remember in uh, more recent history times that it's gone very badly. But was there things that you learned about in writing this book that actually gave you some some hope? Well, I'm, uh, in general, a uh, believer in human progress. Uh, and I just can't shake that <laughs> somehow uh, over decades uh, of work. So I believe that uh, increases of know-how, technology, uh, and uh, institutions are the fundamental ways of making progress. I can't help as a development economist to emphasize how much progress has been made over the millennia and over the recent centuries. So the book is, uh, in that sense, fundamentally optimistic, but history is just littered with utter disaster and human stupidities. And uh, I always uh, refer to one of my gurus, uh, E.O. Wilson, the great evolutionary biologist at Harvard University, who has said that we have stumbled into the 21st century uh, with our Stone Age emotions, our medieval institutions, and our near godlike technologies. When you have massive shocks, World War I, World War II, and I think COVID-19 might become such a shock, you learn things change in a big way. After World War I, the collapse of multiple empires. Uh, After World War II, uh, the formation of the United Nations. You ask, well, what does that big change mean? For COVID-19, it's an epidemic. If we said, oh, we've got a pathogen that is traveling the world. We need to cooperate intensively, exchange best practices, 
uh, use each other's applications, work together to develop a new vaccine, help impoverished regions uh, that are uh, suffering uh, and are at risk of uh, grave uh, hunger uh, and uh, infection from this, ah, that'd be that would be quite a response, and we'd actually get this epidemic under quick control. Instead, we don't have that, and we are not yet wedded to the disastrous path, but we sure have taken a couple of steps in the wrong direction. And now, I would put it this way, if we don't have the good luck of a vaccine in the next half year, which would be kind of the miracle wish and uh, way out of this, I think we're more likely than not to fall into a deep depression covering a large part of the world and a very, very tough geopolitical situation. You've described the clash between the US and China. We know there has certainly been an absence of leadership in the international institutions, you know, the gap where the US used to be uh, in places like the International Monetary Fund. You've had extensive experience in the UN. But, you know, we've spoken to the, the chief economist of the IMF, Gita Gopinath, and, and others about the resources that are there to support developing economies from a financial standpoint, getting through this and potentially uh, debt restructurings, all the things that one talks about when developing countries are in crisis. It's not doesn't or it's not necessarily going to resolve the disease catastrophe, but those institutions are still there. I mean, they can still there is a prospect of them giving some of the support that these countries need. You know, uh, history looms so large in this, and and when you're aware of the history, it, it really absolutely is both uh, captivating, promising, and worrisome. So. When I was a student a long, long time ago uh, in economics, the book we read was uh, The World in Depression by the great economic historian Charles Kindleberger. Fantastic book, but his basic theme was the Great Depression was so deep because there was no global leadership at the time. Britain had basically lost the leadership after World War I. The United States had not yet accepted the leadership that it would after World War II. And so there was uh, this period of the 1930s where there was no cooperation and bad went to worse and then to worse and then to Hitler and then to World War II. And uh, it was a captivating read, but as a student, uh, I said, well, thank God, we're out of that uh, mess. We won't have that again. And here we are with another mega crisis and clearly no leadership of that kind. So here we are today. I believe that the IMF is the most important institution on the scene to uh, stop the current public health crisis from turning into a mega financial, humanitarian, and economic crisis for much of the world. And uh, I'm working with the IMF every day, uh, including uh, workshops today, actually, on helping the IMF to lead. But its balance sheet is too small, and uh, its board includes uh, the United States uh, and, of course, China and other major countries that have to agree 
if the IMF as an organization is to play the role that it should be. In effect, the IMF should be a central bank for at least the uh, emerging economies and the low-income countries. The United States government has the Fed to print money, in effect, and the Fed's printing a lot of it. It's uh, issuing credits of trillions and trillions of dollars overnight, uh, not even a vote of a Congress. Uh, that's the privilege of uh, the U.S. Uh, having the key international currency, uh, at least for the moment. Uh, but the developing countries don't have anything like that. They may have their own central banks, but they can't print internationally uh, accepted currencies. And if they do print their own currency a lot, they get a balance of payments crisis or spiraling inflation sooner rather than later. And the IMF is the place to step in and say, you know, you can address this crisis because we're going to be providing, in effect, an international currency or a basket uh, like the uh, SDR uh, that will enable you not to have a balance of payments crisis, giving you some of those resources uh, that are now under deployed globally that should be for you, not just for the rich countries. Long story short, yes, the IMF can make a huge difference. It was designed for this moment but it needs a greatly expanded balance sheet and it needs more of the Keynes vision. And unfortunately, uh, vision is not exactly the word you would attach to the Trump administration. Finally, many people will have seen very vividly and been reminded of the importance of having an effective government and can see that when it's really needed, you need government to not just be involved, but spend a lot of money. And somehow when it's really needed, a lot of money appears. Um, those are things that certainly have been Americans and Brits have been taught to not think over the last few years. You couldn't, there was no, in the UK, you talk about there's no magic money tree. Uh, and in the US, obviously, the government institutions have been sort of consistently undermined. You know, it's hard to sustain that sort of anti-government rhetoric in the face of this crisis, surely. Keynes uh, taught us to think about uh, the macro economy. That is the idea that uh, you can think about an economy as a whole and choose to move resources in a particular direction. We haven't been making society-wide choices. Now we're going to have... Uh, uh, in the wake of COVID, not only a tremendous amount of suffering, but back to Keynes and his understanding of the 1920s and 1930s, a lot of dramatically underutilized people and uh, resources of other kinds of factories and buildings and so forth. How will we deploy those? One approach will be say, ah, we don't deploy them. What, what happens, happens. Again, if there's no miracle solution of a vaccine or a cure uh, to this, those underutilized resources are likely to stay heavily underutilized. I would say double-digit unemployment rates in a lot of the world, including the United States, for years to come, not months, not quarters, years and years to come. Uh, but if we do choose to deploy the people, the skills, the technologies, in the right way, 
then, as Keynes said, you get back to uh, using the potential of the society and solving social problems. Uh, actually, not just putting people back to work, but thereby alleviating poverty, restoring dignity and well-being, and even building the clean economy uh, so that we're not wrecking our lives and our health by air pollution or destroying the planet with climate change. So I think the, the, the right way to think about this is we're going to have an opportunity, if we understand it, to make choices at national, regional, and global level to build our societies in better ways. Uh, and uh, part of that is the technical issues of governments running budget deficits or using uh, the central banks uh, to redeploy those resources. But a lot of it is not just to boost aggregate demand in the jargon of uh, macroeconomics, just more spending, but for what? For a better world, for a fairer world, for a uh, socially inclusive and environmentally sustainable world. We will have a constructive opportunity in front of us. We will have a need for cooperation. And uh, I think the lessons of history uh, show it can go either way. So it's really worth the effort to make it go the right way. I'm going to seize the chance. We started uh, looking into the abyss uh, at the beginning of the interview uh, with the potential impact of this of this catastrophe. But I, I, we had good uplifting moments there of, of, of a, a proactive and positive approach on the world. So we definitely that's where we should leave it. But uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, thank you very much. Well, great to be with you as always. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on uh, on your series. It's so striking that one spends so much more time talking to economists now about history and politics than about economics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're back to, back to political economy and Adam Smith. We really are. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID-19 is turning the global economy upside down. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics during the week, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Professor Jeffrey Sachs, Ferdinando Giuliano and Andrea Bussell. Lucy Meakin is the acting executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.